right, and we're live. <laughs> well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest and first live episode of In With The Old. We're a video podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. We're going to have some technical difficulties as we get everything started. And that's my fault because I had our stream live in the other window and I was hearing double. Sorry about that, everyone. It's a live episode. <laughs> Things are going to happen. I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Dr. Tim Howe, for this very special episode. Tim, how are you doing today, my friend? What's going on? Dr. Brian, here we are. It's our very first live episode. I am incredibly excited. Uh, I'm also excited because of what we're going to be doing in this series. So uh, the heart is pumping fast. Hopefully the mind is going to follow as well. Uh, but I always love spending time with you, Brian. How are you? I'm doing well. A, a few butterflies in the stomach as well. Uh, as you know, it's live, there's no net to catch you. But I'm also excited, <laughs> Tim, as you said. So this episode is the kickoff listeners of season three which we're going to call Counterpoint. This season is focused around areas of Old Testament study that Dr. Tim and I either don't agree on outright or have some interesting or different questions or we're not sure what our view is. So yes. each week you're going to see as you come to watch us live, if you can, that's every Monday night at 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific, you're going to watch us uh, go through these debates. Each episode is going to have roughly the same structure. So it's going to start by each of us presenting our view in short form. So five, maybe 10 minutes. Uh, we're a theologian and a pastor. We don't stick to time <laughs> commitments very well. Um, but we're going to just kind of go, here's the high level position that I'm going to adopt. And after that, we'll just kind of open it up. And Tim and I will go back and forth with our questions. Chat, if you are here live with us on YouTube, this is where you can get engaged and kind of ask your follow-up questions. Ask for clarification because maybe Tim and I have debated something and have now pushed it to a place where we're okay with it, but maybe we haven't made it clear enough for everyone else. Now, importantly, and this is the exciting part, Tim and I have shared with one another our high-level view. So we aren't going into this totally blind. We kind of know what the other person's position is but we haven't shared those questions we're going to ask. So that's going to be completely live. We're hoping <laughs> to capture some good energy and just some loving debate. Um, Tim, I'm excited because in my mind, right, I've kicked around this idea. I'm sure you've kicked around your view as well. Yes. And I feel like I've answered every question, but I'm well aware <laughs> I've only answered every question that I can think of. You're such a brilliant scholar and I, I want to find the truth. I know you want to find truth about God's word. And so I'm excited for the debate because no matter what happens in it, I'm going to come out knowing God's word better. So uh, I'm ready to dive in. Anything you want to say before we get into the, get into the meat of the episode? Hey, I'm, I'm excited for the same reason, Brian, you know, one of, one of the passions and goals for this podcast is to uh, re-engage our audience with uh, just the pleasure of reading God's word that it truly is something that God's given to us as a gift. And so we can have a friendly debate and, uh, and we'll see how the audience feels like we did at the end. Uh, but I'm ready to get going. Let's do this. All right. Let's do this. So for this episode, I'm going to go first. So, and tonight we are going to be debating the garden of Eden. Is it a temple or rather does the Bible present it as a temple? I'm adopting the position that yes, the Bible thinks the garden of Eden is a temple Tim is going to be arguing for the position that the Bible does not think the Garden of Eden is a temple. So let me go first and present my view. Let's start with Tim. I'll, I'll kind of look at you for this portion. Let's start with the, the bad fact of my position. If you read through Genesis 1 and 2, the garden is never called a temple. However, simply because a term is absent does not mean the concept is absent. I'm sure we are both in complete agreement that God is triune, and yet the word Trinity does not occur in the Bible. So I'm going to argue, listeners, that the garden is a temple on two primary points, that it, one, fulfills the function of a temple, and two, fits the model of a temple. Here's how I argue for that. First, the garden fulfills the primary role of any temple. It is a meeting place between God and humanity. 
Uh, Hundley has a great book on it. We can go into this in the discussion time. Um, but he says a temple is a place of mediated contact where you have divine presence and ritual action. You have these in one place and you have a temple. The Garden of Eden certainly has that. Human activity in the garden is described with the Hebrew terms avad and shamar. Now, this is Genesis 2.15. Adam is told to work and keep the garden. Now, those two terms are not terribly uncommon. They are fairly common words, but when used together, it's much more rare. And in fact, these are the exact same two Hebrew verbs used of the priests. It's used in Numbers 3.7, 3.8, Numbers chapters 5 and 6, 1 Chronicles 23.32, and Ezekiel 44.14. To describe the work of the priests in the temple. I also want to give a shout out to one of our good friends, Dr. Nick Majors. Dr. Nick Majors was one of our friends who went through our PhD program, and he defended a dissertation that there is some sort of king-priest motif in the Old Testament. If that is true, it's quite fascinating because David is also referred to with these two terms in 1 Kings 11.34 and 1 Kings 14.8. So we have human activity in the garden. Do we have God's presence? Well, most certainly, and most certainly in a temple sense. So God's walking in the garden in uh, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve hide from him. The verb used is the exact same verb used to describe God's presence in the temple in Leviticus 26, 12 and Ezekiel 28, 14. Credit to G.K. Beale for that observation. So I, I think here the garden matches the function of a temple. But more than that, I think it fits the model of a temple. So what do I mean by that? Well, first, the tabernacle and temple will use garden imagery throughout their construction and design. Uh, I'll just pick a couple examples. The lampstand, the menorah, appears to be connected to the tree of life with its many branches reaching to the sky. The temple frequently uses wood, gold, and onyx, these are the specific elements called out in the description of the garden in Genesis 2. The Garden of Eden is located on a mountain. Now wait, you're saying, Dr. Brian, I read Genesis 2. I never see it called a mountain anywhere. No, but it says a river flows away from it in every direction. The only geographical feature I'm aware of that can have a river flow away from it in every direction is a mountain. More specifically, it is actually called a mountain by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 28, 13 through 16. Um, as a point of order, because I think I've already screwed up, this is the Garden in Eden, not Garden of Eden. We can tease that out later if we want to. Uh, the Garden, much like the throne of God in Revelation 22, is a source of living slash running water. The Garden, much like the Temple's Holy of Holies, requires a guard. When Adam and Eve are thrust out of the garden, a cherubim is placed there. Cherubim also are on the curtains that guard the Holy of Holies and above the Ark of the Covenant itself. The garden opens to the east, much like the temple does. Ezekiel, or I'm sorry, uh, Exodus 27, 16, Numbers 3:38, And lastly, and maybe a bit speculatively, I'll totally admit that, but it is fascinating that when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is going to culminate his ministry a ministry where he is going to take upon himself this action of a living temple, no longer confined to one place. He makes his final kind of culminating prayer in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And I don't think that's accidental. Now, I think the garden matches the function then and model of a temple. And why it matters is because I think it gives us this beautiful picture and harmony in the biblical story. From the first page to the last, God is seeking relationship and community with his people. A temple is a place of mediation. We see that in the garden, but we see it improved, expanded, and perfected in the new heavens and new earth, where the temple is something alive, something present in everyone's hearts. So that's my brief argument, Tim. Sorry if I went too long uh, for why I think the garden oh, is a temple. So I'll now turn it over to Dr. Tim to present his view for us. All right. Well, Thank you, Brian. And uh, that was a great argument. And uh, as, as we think about the garden being a temple, uh, I, I just want to say up front that I think, at least in terms of the survey of scholarship that I've seen, uh, I think that really is a very strong majority opinion. 
for those of our viewers who, who may think, wow, I've never heard this before, that's, that's very normal. Uh, but among Old Testament scholarship or among Old Testament scholars, uh, there really is a lot of evidence, a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of articles, a lot of writing that's uh, gone into supporting this and showing the kind of similarities that Brian has pointed out. Uh, and so Brian's position, I think, really is uh, a very strong position and majority position. That being said, I think it's wrong. And, uh, and I want to briefly explain why. Uh, when we think about a, a temple, we have to understand what we're talking about. And as, as we think about a temple, we could simply define a temple as uh, any place where the presence of God dwells. Uh, if you missed our interview with uh, in Blake Hearson, he had a, an entire book called Go Now to Shiloh, where he talked about the presence of God and how God uh, shows himself in various sacred places throughout the Old Testament. Uh, but I don't think that that simplistic definition is quite what we're going for. We're trying to understand the Garden of Eden in terms of a, a broader construct, not, not just of where God dwells momentarily, uh, as is often the case, say, with Jacob and his ladder or in the tabernacle, but in, in, in sort of a permanent place where that mediation between God and man can occur. But here's, here's my basic argument. Uh, the Garden of Eden is not a temple because no temple was necessary in a pre-fall world. That, that is the basic argument, that temple uh, entails an idea of separation that simply wasn't true in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, in other words, I don't argue against any of the details that Brian brought up, but what I don't think they prove is that the garden itself was a temple. What I think they prove is that later temples, uh, and especially the Temple of Israel, pointed back to a reality that the garden was. Uh, so it's not that I don't think the garden was a place of the mediated presence of God. I think it was. It's not that I don't think it was a place where there was worship of God taking place. I think it was. Uh, and even in terms of the form of the temple, Brian mentioned various views uh, or various words that were used in terms of Shamar and Avad and the combination of those words used of priests. All of those things, I think, are true and accurate. Uh, but the fundamental question is not whether later temples, uh, later temples were temples, but what, rather whether or not the garden is a temple uh, and that the language flows from the garden rather than the other way around. Uh, so here's, here's my basic argument to give a few bullet points. Uh, as Brian said, the garden is never referred to as a temple. Now, again, I concede, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, right? Quacks like a duck. Then some would say, well, obviously you have a duck. So Tim, why are you so obstinate about this? Well, I just think it's worth pointing out up front that the author could have very simply referred to the Garden of Eden as a temple, but he did not. I will also point out that not only did the original author not point to the Garden of Eden as a temple, but also subsequent authors never explicitly refer to it as a temple as well. Um, also, Again, going back to just conceptually what a temple is, a temple, in, in my mind, as I think of a temple, it entails there being a fundamental separation between God and man that has to be overcome. And to me, that is, that is a huge point in terms of trying to understand whether the garden is a temple. Uh, subsequent temples were designed to overcome this. As Brian mentioned, when we see the design of the tabernacle or the design of the temple, it's very obvious that they point back to Eden. But as we think about that reality, it makes sense. They were pointing back to a situation where there was no separation, at which point the function of the temple is to take us as close as we can to a time whenever man could be close to God. But again, in the Garden of Eden, there was no separation that had to be overcome. Um, and then finally, uh, I'll say this, the presence of God with humanity is necessary, but not sufficient for something to be described as a temple. Uh, there are times when God shows up in various places, uh, and in a sense, that presence of God, it's kind of like if a president gets on board a plane, that plane automatically for that time becomes Air Force One. Uh, in a sense, anywhere that God is, is a temple. But in a much greater sense, it's not necessarily the case. For a permanent place to be called a temple, there has to be a permanent residence of God. Uh, and then last but not least, Brian referenced this, but I think uh, looking at it from a full biblical theological perspective, 
I really put a lot of stock in what Revelation 21 says about the new Jerusalem. And here's what it says. I'm going to read verse 22. But I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, here's what I would note. Almost all of the features that Brian described uh, in terms of functionality, in terms of fruit, in terms of the presence of God, in terms of there being a river that gives life, almost all of those features are true of the New Jerusalem, but it says explicitly there is no temple, meaning that there was no building that represented a mediation place where you had to go to experience the presence of God. No, it says rather the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, I think that helps us to understand a couple of things. Not only do I not think the Garden of Eden is a temple, but I actually don't think the entire cosmos is a temple as well. So I'm going to argue against a position that Brian does not hold, but uh, many scholars, and I think particularly of John Walton uh, here, he would argue that the entire cosmos represents the temple. I don't think that's correct either. Why? Because I think where God's presence dwells and there is no need for mediation because there's been no sin, the right word for that is simply not temple. Later temples may reflect that reality, but the right word for that situation is not temple. Why? Because temple entails separation. So that is my view in a nutshell. I have no idea how long I took on that, Brian. So That's I will plead right. pastoral ignorance. And, uh, and so now we can get to uh, some questions for each other. Yeah. All right. So thank you for that, Tim. Um, that was helpful. I was taking notes. Uh, there's some good quotes in there. So that was the scripted part, uh, our gentle <laughs> listeners. Now we're off the rails completely. So, uh, yes. Tim, I guess I'll start with a question for you, but then feel free to, to redirect. Um, I sure. think the heart of our debate is going to come down to how we define temple. Um, mm -hmm. and, and yes, I certainly would not hold as Walton does that the entire cosmos is a temple. Um, that, that type of thinking feels like chiasm searching in the, in the Bible. Mm. You'll find it everywhere you look for it. Um, yeah. yeah. So you said a temple is not any place where God's presence dwells. And I agree, right? We, that's too simplistic. Otherwise you quickly, you have temples sprouting everywhere. Um, yes. What would you say though, is the foundational element or definition of what a temple is. You said it once, but I want to make sure I, I got you correctly on this. How would you define what so, a temple is? I'm glad you asked that because specifically, I don't think we even have to ask the question what we would define it as. I want to think how would the first readers of the text understood and define temple? Sure. Culture of the ancient and Near I, East. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so I think they would have defined temple in terms of a building or specific location where you could readily expect the presence of God to be. Um, so yes, they understood God's presence might not be there all the time. Think, for instance, exile when you know the presence of God might be gone from the temple, but a specific physical location where the presence of God would be and that they had to go to that particular location in order to experience the presence of God. Okay, so elements uh, of the definition has to be a place. Um, has to be a place with people and the divine presence, <laughs> at least at some part or portion, right? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily permanent. And um, I'll grant you that. Um, I don't think many ancient Near Eastern cultures thought you could always access their God. In fact, if, if you want to say a temple has to require permanent indwelling, there's no temple in any of the Bible because God didn't permanently indwell anything. Right, right. But based on that definition, doesn't the Garden of Eden fit all those qualifications? You have a place, you have humans performing some sort of, uh, and Michael Hunley in his definition says some sort of ritual action. He leaves it mm -hmm. obviously nebulous because um, going across culture, there's a lot of different ways there. But you have uh, a place, human action, and you have God's presence. Yes. That's the definition now, of a temple, isn't it? Here's here's the distinction. Yes, okay. it's the definition I just gave. So fair point. All right. Turnabout's fair play. But here's the reality. The presence of God in the Garden of Eden was not the same kind of presence that we see in other places. Okay. So uh, in, in especially in the Jerusalem temple, there is a level of awareness of God's presence that simply wasn't true in later times. Uh, in fact, when we think of, uh, and, and you mentioned, right, the hip pahel of halak being used, yep. 
Um, and as you mentioned, halak for our listeners is a word that basically just, just means, means to walk. walk. <laughs> and uh, and so it sounds really fancy. It's not. But as we think of God walking in the midst of the garden, this is something that throughout the scriptures, the goal, the trajectory, the telos of the scriptures is that God would have a people and he would be among them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the temple was in one sense a down payment of that. It was it was a foretaste of what would ultimately come. But the temple itself, I think, is not just a distinction in uh, quantity in terms of the presence of God. I would say it's a difference in quality. Um, and so as I think about the Garden of Eden, they had the kind of relationship with God that was only possible without sin, um, which is why, again, there is a close tie between Eden and temple. Uh, but when we think of the presence of God, I think the presence of God in the garden was qualitatively different. Um, I also think, if, if I might add this, Brian, real mm-hmm. quick, I also think uh, if you just ask a conceptual question, this might seem silly, but if you were to ask Adam and Eve in the garden, the man and the woman in the garden, is the Garden of Eden a temple? I think what they would have said is, we don't understand what you mean by temple. They would have had no conception of that. And I think uh, on the one hand, you might say, well, duh, of course, you know, you could have asked them uh, what's a lot of things and they wouldn't have understood it. But I I think that question is a little bit telling because they wouldn't have understood the need for any kind of true mediation. They wouldn't have understood that there was any fundamental separation that had to be overcome. So that again gets to the. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Finish. No, I was just saying, and, and that to me is, again, the heart of it. Temple entails separation. Uh, I think okay. that the, the entire premise of a temple is that there is a barrier that has to be overcome, and therefore you have to go to the temple to overcome a barrier. So maybe I want to register and edit in my definition uh, that it entails the idea of a barrier between heaven and earth that simply wasn't present in the garden. Well, and that's what I had heard in your first definition, so I was wanting to drill down. Right. I was like, okay, there, there's a... Would you object to me using the term there's a partitive sense that a temple represents that there is a, this is something distinct from regular space, whatever, sacred space versus regular space. We're we're on something different here. Um, Yes, yes. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. My question then, though, is I'm guessing we're assuming Mm. here that sin is that separating thing. Clearly is for the rest of scripture. Right, right. But is sin the only thing that creates that partitive space? And that's where I'm going to say, no, there is something special about Eden, uh, or rather the garden, as distinct from Eden, as distinct from the land. Uh, Mm -hmm. Even in Genesis 1 and 2, you have partitive discussions of how the world is being put together. And so there's not Mm -hmm. sin that separates them, but there is something special, even if it is artificial, being separated in Eden. Um, so I think you have a distinct place where there's a unique presence of God not felt elsewhere. I don't think that's sin. I think that God has attached heaven and earth differently here. Um, and we can drill into that if you want. Um, All right. Well, Brian, yes. let me, right, let me ask you a question then. So you mentioned uh, that the, the scholar you quoted talked about there being certain ritual activities yes. uh, in Eden. And, uh, and here's a question that I want to ask you. When I think of uh, essentially every example of an ancient Near Eastern temple that I can think of, they all had some sort of sacrifice. And okay. to me, sacrifice is a particular kind of ritual activity. Uh, so when we think of uh, working and keeping the garden, uh, I think literally their, their role was to tend the garden, to work it, to make it flourish uh, under God. And so uh, later temples, however, basically all had sacrifice. So I didn't add that into my definition of temple, but what would you say is the ritual activity in the garden? And is that fundamentally different, as I would argue, than basically every other temple we see? Okay, so we're, we're, we're changing our definition of temple a little bit, but that's all right. <laughs> so, no, it's a good question. A couple points. Is sacrifice, and because when we use sacrifice as Old Testament scholars, we might be thinking animal. Obviously, there's grain. There's other sacrifices. Um, mm-hmm. One, is that actually part and parcel of the definition of a temple? Or is that now a necessary component of the definition post-fall? 
Because see, mm. I want to push back and go that mediation for sin is now required in temples because that is now the barrier. That was not mm. the barrier in the garden and therefore uh, we should be expecting something else. Um, there are certainly non-sacrificial elements or ritual elements in most cultures, including Israel. There's the singing of songs as just one example. That could be part mm. of the service in a temple. Lifting up of prayers things like that, communing, actually talking with God. Um, I did not do this study, and Tim, if you have, I'd be very happy to see this. Um, those words, to work and to guard, or work and keep, I don't think are generally associated with cultivation. Uh, mm. I don't believe those are the common terms we would expect for agriculture, which does raise the question, whatever we do a temple, this is an odd way to describe what Adam is supposed to do in the garden. He's to work yeah. it and to guard it or to keep it. Um, so yeah, that would be my, uh, what specifically they're doing. I don't know. I know we already have sacrifices post fall, right? With Cain and Abel. Um, mm -hmm. But sacrifices are not the only way of having ritual actions in a temple, prayers, singing of songs. You have other things which would not necessarily entail or require sin to be present. Let me... Um, if I can, I'll, I'll keep answering this, but let me push in mm -hmm. the sound. This is going to sound like it's off topic, but I don't, I don't think it is. Would you agree that there are no subsequent acts of creation post Genesis one? However, we interpret Genesis one and what happens there. You don't have new things being created in the heavens post Genesis one. I can clarify that for you if you want, or, or be more specific. So, so you said, there are no acts of creation in the heavens post Genesis one. I'm specifically uh, thinking, is, did God create any new orders of spiritual being, for example, in reaction to the fall? Yeah. I, I don't think there's any biblical evidence of that. Okay. So that means yeah. the cherubim already exist in Genesis one. Mm -hmm. Cherubim are guardians. Who mm -hmm. are they guarding God from? There's bodyguards. Now, he doesn't need bodyguards. He doesn't even need bodyguards mm -hmm. post-fall. But the cherubim block access to God. And if we're in agreement, and because I don't think there's any biblical evidence of that, then they're created at the beginning. And my question would be, why? Why did God create with them? And I think the answer for that is the same answer for why there's a temple. Could heaven and earth be fully joined at the creation event and you have God's presence fully everywhere all at once yes absolutely of course the answer is always going to be yes but i don't think he did i think he did create the touch point of heaven and earth with a temple motif just like he created the cherubim as guardians because this is how we interpret reality these are the trappings we expect of kings of rulers god is condescending as he does with all scripture to our thoughts to ancient Near Eastern culture and custom. So that uh, maybe is the reason underlying Tim, because I think you bring up a good point. Why would this be a temple if it's not needed? And so this is kind of getting to my answer, because I think it fits how we expect things to go. Um, yeah, sorry, I'll let you hop in there. So Brian, let me let me ask you this, and, and it might bring a point of clarity. Can you explain to our listeners, you mentioned that partitive nature of creation. Uh, I think I understand what you mean by that, but can you explain a little bit more about how you believe the Garden of Eden was distinct, uh, even, among, uh, even among the land of Eden and mm -hmm. then the outer circle of the world? Uh, do you believe that the role of uh, Adam and Eve, for instance, was to extend Eden, as some people argue? How would you understand that? And then that might help uh, highlight some of our disagreement too. Yeah, that's a great question. So in the creation account, you have three terms that we're all going to wrestle mm -hmm. with, right? And of course, I don't have the Hebrew in front of me and we're live. So <laughs> um, you've got land, which is Eretz. Apologies, Dr. Andrews and Hearson, if I forgot something. But uh, <laughs> you've got land, right? Um, you then have Eden. And I said, even in my view, we should drill down into this. We always call it the Garden of Eden but that is grammatically incorrect. Genesis 2 talks mm. about a garden being created in Eden. That means mm. Eden is not the name of the garden, but there is a garden within the land of Eden. So you have these three terms, the land in general or the earth, Eden itself, and then a garden. 
So that seems mm. to be the most natural reading would be arbitrary distinctions between these three places. Now, mm. then the question is, are they, is this just the author saying the same thing three different ways? Is there a distinction? Are Adam and Eve to extend Eden to, or the garden rather, to all the land? That I don't know because I think the biblical text is silent on. I mm. tend to think that the, if I could speculate just a little bit, that the garden is the temple, the place in which Adam and Eve are acting as these, excuse me, priests for God. Mm -hmm. They are to be fruitful and multiply. I don't think their descendants are going to be in the garden necessarily because that's not what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. So they're supposed to be spreading to Eden, spreading to the ends of the world. Um, there is not much there though. We have Genesis one and two. It is a very short volume of text. So I do want to be careful of maybe overspeaking the evidence, but, um, off the top of my head, that's my, my quick and dirty distinction of the three areas. Okay. So I, I think that's helpful. And I think Brian, it's helpful also to point out at, at this juncture that I think you and I fundamentally are approaching, uh, the text from the same standpoint. In in other words, we want to know what the text says. We take seriously mm -hmm. the ancient Near Eastern back, uh, background, cultural background uh, that the original readers would have assumed. Uh, but you and I, and this is our heartbeat, we are both textualists in the sense that the text is what we look at. Um, and that's why we pay particular attention to the words, the syntax, but also uh, we don't want to go beyond the text. The text gives us our limits. Uh, but here's, it's interesting because what you mentioned about the children, I think is actually significant. And here's why, because the media, the mediation of Adam and Eve, to me, uh, that doesn't make sense. And what you said is probably the closest I've heard to it making sense to me. But if they are meant to be priests in the garden and a priestly role is fundamentally about mediating the presence of God, uh, my question is, who are they mediating the presence of God to or to whom are they mediating that presence? Yeah. Uh, and and I, I would just say when you compound that with the idea that, OK, yes, Ahmad and Shamar are interesting verbs to use in terms of cultivating a garden or guarding or keeping a garden. Um, yes, but in terms of there not being sacrifice, in terms of there not being anyone to mediate God's presence to. Um, and I would throw this one out just as a curveball. This may be unfair. Uh, you didn't mention this, but other people do who hold this view about uh, gar about the Garden of Eden being a garden, or as as we should say, the garden in Eden being a garden, just mm -hmm. so you know I was listening. Um, they point out that priestly garments were actually given to Adam and Eve. Uh, and the same, the yeah. same cloaks that, that the name of cloaks that they were given once they sinned actually matches the names that are, you know, used to describe the priestly garments. And to me, that actually proves my point. Uh, and so I'm not trying to straw man you uh, at all, but some of the people who agree with you are pointing out, wait a second, the, the clothing element matches priests, at which point I think the, the entire idea of being naked and knowing no shame again points to the emphasis that there was no separation either between Adam and Eve or between Adam and Eve and God. Okay. Uh, at which point, how can you have mediation when there is no separation? Uh, in, in other words, I don't understand how a priestly role uh, would have been given to Adam and Eve. Uh, because again, there was no mediation necessary in a pre-fall world. Okay. So um, to track with you, I heard three questions i want to make sure i don't miss any of them classic um, debating point give them three points and then say you didn't answer all my didn't points answer all so my there points. you go um no so you you asked again about sacrifices and who are they mediating yes. for or were those two different questions so i i guess yeah so when i i i'm, I'm thinking of you define temple in terms of function and form okay and i i, I want to press back in on there is no example that I know of of a temple where sacrifice wasn't essential. So my pushback to you talking about singing or gathering or all the other things that can happen in a, in a temple is 
that sacrifice seems to be essential to its function because again to enter into and you see this in the the israelite temple to enter into the levels of temple you have to have more and more levels of sacrificial and, and ritual cleansing okay so um, sacrifice so, who are they mediating for and then genesis 3 which yes. i didn't bring it up because i don't hold that view but i will okay i'll, I'll address I actually know why do. i don't um, okay so, perfect there you go uh <laughs> sacrifice why is there no example of a temple uh, operating without a sacrifice it's because there's no other example of a temple pre-fall um now mm. i'm not trying to split hairs here but Think of this, what we have here is a very unique situation in redemptive history and universe history, right? Much like the book of Acts. Within the book of Acts, Tim, there's a lot of things that happen that we go, that was a unique thing that happened. Here are people that are saved that don't have the Holy Spirit. What do we do mm -hmm. with that? There are unique things that don't fit any other category because we're at a pivot point between two different I don't want to use the term dispensation or covenant because then someone's going to get mad at me, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. we're in an era of history that is unprecedented. We're mm -hmm. also in an unprecedented era of history here. So I'm mm -hmm. not at all surprised if our temple does not fully match what later temples do because they do have something slightly different, but I think it has all the essential characteristics Everything that's mm -hmm. different is derivative because now sin is in the mix and we have something new to deal with. So that's how mm -hmm. I'd push back on that or rather answer that. Um, sure. Two, who are they mediating for? I do think it is their kids. This is going far afield, so we don't have to go here if you don't want to. But yeah. Eve is called the mother of all the living, present mm -hmm. tense. There is no time marker between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It's left to our mm -hmm. own devices. The Bible is rather agnostic to it. I tend to be of the opinion that there's a great deal of time between these two chapters. I tend mm -hmm. to think there are plenty of people. This is why, by the way, Cain can go and find other people to go live with, because there are people who importantly have spread abroad. Now, is that spread pre-fall, mm -hmm. post-fall? I tend to adopt the view that it's pre-fall. They are spreading throughout the land of Eden to the ends of the earth as they were intended. So you have a mediating couple yeah. mediating that presence Again, there's no sin as a barrier. It's actual physical presence. God is said to walk in the garden, not in Eden, not in the earth, mm -hmm. just in this one place. And if being textualist, because I, I think that's important. We are. We are taking the text seriously here. Um, if we've been given these three terms and only one of the terms is associated with God's walking in the garden, mm -hmm. that maybe implies to me that we do have something special here that is nowhere else. So uh, that was question one. That was question two. Question three. Oh, the, the, the fall getting kicked out. I don't see anything about the sacrificial system being instituted with the clothing of Adam and Eve as they're kicked out of the garden. I yeah. don't think that's a terribly good reading of the text for a couple reasons. One, I don't believe it's an uncommon term used for their uh, cloak. So yes, there's some mm -hmm. connection there, but I don't know how strong... It's been a while since I've looked at that evidence, but I don't know how strong that is. There is no term of sacrifice used of the killing of the animal. Um, there's nothing that the Bible then later connects and goes, as God clothed the first human, so he's now closes with this. It never goes back to this text. I have always looked at that, Tim. The clothing of Adam and Eve is much akin to the father with the younger son and the prodigal son. Clothing entails relationship. They've been kicked out of the garden, but God still gives them clothes because he's not done with them. He has not yeah. forsaken them. So that's what I think is going on there. It doesn't make, I mean, if he's been given priestly garments just for to play devil's advocate, doesn't that prove that they were priests in the first place? They remain priests. Um, mm. I don't know. I, I, I don't see that that's an element at work there. Um, so I was that an answer to all three of your questions or do you want to uh, push back on any of my answers? So I, I think I would just say again, I agree with you fundamentally that it was a different era and that it was a different period of redemptive history. But I think that's, again, my point in that period of redemptive history, the very concept of temple was unnecessary. Okay. Now, I, I will say that, uh, you know, as, as I've thought about just that idea of God walking in the garden, that does seem to be a unique 
experience of his presence. Mm -hmm. In other words, it wasn't that God was there always in the same way, but that God manifested himself in particular ways to Adam and Eve at a particular time. Um, and, and yet I think for me, uh, the entire premise of there being, okay, a garden, then Eden, then the rest of the earth. Um, I'm still not sold on that, okay. uh, partly because I don't think it, it really gives us a comprehensive picture. Uh, and, and you mentioned this, and I think we are in agreement on this, the idea of sort of, you know, the land outside of Eden being raw and uncultivated. And so basically kind of turn it into, uh, you know, Eden again, there are many scholars who hold that, um, but that, that idea has never made sense to me, I think in part because uh, not just of what it says in Genesis 1 and 2, but how, how Genesis 3 and being removed from the garden uh, was, was such an absolutely devastating moment uh, in the history of salvation. Uh, and so if, if there were people, and I think this is relevant to what you said, I'm also not sold that Adam and Eve had a mediatorial presence for their offspring in part because, uh, and, and I'm thinking out loud on this, so I've, I've got an objection in my own mind, uh, but if they had that role, why would they not still have that role post-fall? Um, so, it, you know, if mm -hmm. they were kicked out of the garden, why would they not still have that role, even if it were in a different context? Um, and, and yet obviously they don't, or at least it, there's nothing explicit about that role. So you have, for instance, Cain and Abel who are offering their gifts, right? And, uh, and there's a lot of debate about that. I think you and I probably both agree that it really wasn't about blood sacrifice. We haven't yeah. talked about that, but in any case, if Adam and Eve did play a mediatorial priestly role, one, and this is a side issue, but that would be, as far as I'm aware, the only instance in all of Scripture where a woman is said to play any kind of mediatorial priestly role. Uh, that literally just came to my mind, so I'm not sure that's valid, but I will just point it out. Um, but again, why would they have lost that role? Or so, why would that role somehow have expanded to all of their children? Um, and if so, if that were the case, why wouldn't the Scripture have said that? So, but to jump in, the mediatorial presence is not mediatorial covering over sin, right? It's going to be some right. sort of physical right. connection. And so just to push back, I think that's how you could say, well, now the game is fundamentally changed. It's now just not that God has been present here. There's now a tangible, not just a spatial, but there's now sin that separates us. This requires something greater. Um, this requires mm -hmm. something more to be fixed here. Um, mm -hmm. So... Uh, also, by the way, you don't necessarily have to agree with me that applies to the woman. This is told when Adam is alone in the garden. So you could, if you want to say it just applies to him, that's fine. Um, mm -hmm. Question, Tim, maybe for you, why it, it makes sense that Israel would remember the garden story. It's their heritage. It's their right, history. Right. Don't you find it suggestive, though, that the places that they remember are always their temples? To my knowledge, it's not really a part of the artistry or common life patterns outside of cultic practice. Um, and isn't that suggestive that they were viewing it as a proto-temple, if you don't want to use the word temple, or but something connected to this? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a, a kind of a lame illustration, but I'm going to throw it out. Okay. Uh, we're both fans of Lord of the Rings, and it's interesting. If you read The Silmarillion... Uh, Tolkien tells this incredible oh, story. Cut. Here we go. It is. It is. So it's like uh, Tolkien gives this this basically depiction of this world, right? Known as Valinor or sort of the the heavenly realm, the undying realms. And uh, it's interesting because in that imagery, and it, it truly is mythology, right? In the proper sense, uh, Tolkien pictures there being two trees: one that showed shone light for half the day, the other that shone light for the other half of the day. And then eventually those two trees, which were themselves sort of the luminaries of that world, were destroyed by the evil, you know, the evil person Morgoth. Uh, and then later the Valar in that story then established two uh, luminaries, the sun and the moon, that were dim reflections of what they had before. But they were basically meant to be a reflection of these two original trees that gave light. Now, for our viewers who don't know Lord of the Rings, that's totally fine, okay? But my entire point is, is that the evidence that we have seems to show that all of the later temples are hearkening back to Eden. 
Uh, but what I want to maintain, and maybe this is just a definitional issue, but what I want to maintain is, again, there is a fundamental difference uh, in both the function and in the significance of uh, God's presence in the garden versus the, the ability to experience God's presence in these other temples. If they were a reflection, they were a dim reflection, which is why I think they point back to Eden. So if you want to call it a proto-temple, I would actually call it the proto-temple. But here's, here's why I don't like the word. And Brian, this will be at least my final pushback because I am okay. interested in your answer and I know you're ready for it. Even by your definition of temple, where you have function, you have form. To me, every part of the definition that you gave would also be true of the new heavens and the new earth, where it explicitly says there is no temple because the lamb, it, the lamb and the father are its temple. Mm -hmm. So that's where, to me, if there's no temple at the end, and I don't have to tell you, but for our listeners, uh, there's, there's so much imagery in Revelation 21 and 22 that evokes the original setting in the Garden of Eden. In that situation, it explicitly says there is no temple, at which point that to me harkens back to the idea that there was no temple necessary in the beginning. Therefore, there, was, there is also no temple necessary in the end. Why? Because sin has been overcome and uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will, be no, uh, there will be no experience of sin, at which point I think that that is basically a direct echo of the situation uh, that happened in the pre-fall garden. So uh, I know you've got an answer to it, Brian. So go ahead and, and, and light me up on this. Well, I'll just start by saying as soon as you read Revelation 22, our response should be, yes, amen, come Lord Jesus. Because yeah. it is a beautiful picture, and it is replete with callbacks to the Old Testament. Um, the mm -hmm. sea has been destroyed as the place of chaos, of darkness, right? Beautiful yeah. imagery. But Tim, right, this is the infuriating thing probably for both of us, I'm going to say, but see, that proves my point. Because Revelation <laughs> says there is no temple and then turns around and says there's a temple. But mm -hmm. now it's changed, right? There is mm -hmm. no temple, i.e. structure. But the mm -hmm. Lamb and the, right, the God himself is the temple. Yeah. When I think of the new heavens and new earth, and this is maybe an interpretation thing that I don't know if we agree or disagree here. I've always viewed as the new heavens and new earth as creation redivious, uh, creation mm -hmm. done again, but better. We sometimes misspeak and say God in the beginning created everything perfect. That mm -hmm. word is not used yeah. in Genesis 1-2. He creates tov. He creates good, right? With no mm -hmm. flaw, no problems there. But the new heavens and new earth have something better. And I think we have to say they have something better or else I think we could challenge and go, are we just in some sort of cyclical view of history? Because if we're in the same place as we started, are we going to have a fall again and then have to go through all this all again, right? What has changed to ensure that the new heavens and new earth are now forever? And I think that's the experiential knowledge of sin, but sin has now been paid for. So when I look at the beginning, as God created that, that knowledge of sin, but sin not being uh, culpable towards us, right? Causing us to have guilt is not present. So we have some starting building blocks. And I think we do have a temple. God's presence, the joining of heaven and earth is only at one place. It's not mm -hmm. full. It could be made even better. Christ comes down as the second Adam. And I haven't really dove a lot into this, but I do think this is a big thing of seeing the garden as a temple. Adam starts as a priest. I don't go to Genesis 3 for that. I go to just his function in Genesis 2. If Christ is the new Adam, perfecting that, we clearly know Christ is put forward as a priestly figure. And not only a priestly figure, but he takes on the temple itself, the mediated presence of God. You brought up Blake Hearson's interview. That's his whole thing with sacred space, right? That's, you don't have to go to a place anymore. That's the beauty. Right. That's the escalation. And so when I read Revelation 22, I look at the new heavens and new earth, and I go, that's the escalated point. That is what has changed. It's not a building. It's not a place here. There's no garden in Revelation 22 because the lamb is with his people. We have now mm. finally perfected that and done away with the building. Now the presence of God is with everyone. 
All right. So that's my two cents. I think we're slowly starting to wrap up. Chat, if you are here with us live, maybe uh, take a moment real quick. I know the stream's behind us by about 30 seconds, but go ahead and start getting in a few questions as Tim and I kind of do some last minute things. We'll see if there's anything we can jump in and answer. But uh, Tim, this has been fantastic. As I said at the beginning, I'd kind of answered questions in my head. You've asked so many good ones. uh, And I really (laughs) appreciate that. Um, Any final things that you're going to, as soon as we stop streaming, go, man, oh, shoot, I forgot to mention this. Any, Any final notes, comments, anything you want to throw out there? Yeah, I I think fundamentally, uh, if I'm understanding it, I think I I still want to maintain the distinction that a pre-sin world is is fundamentally different. And I know you do, too. I'm not, again, convinced in the the segmentation of land, Eden, garden. Uh, But honestly, some something that you mentioned and we kind of thought about this earlier it is interesting because one point that I really don't have any answer for is why God walking in the garden in that moment, uh, that, that does seem to be unique. So yeah. in my view, if I want to strengthen it, I'm going to go back and try and figure out, okay, well, why would God have uniquely walked in the garden in that, in that time and place, not just to find Adam and Eve in that moment, but is that not showing that there was one central access point between God and man? So uh, you've sharpened me, Brian. And uh, I'm still, I'm, I'm slow to be convinced of almost anything, but you have raised questions to which I have no answers. So well done. Well, thank you for hopping on this, Tim. And that's, that's <laughs> part of the beauty of why we're doing this. Uh, I feel very sharp and I feel pushed. I feel like I need to get more work. I'm very curious uh, on how often <laughs> the words to work and to keep are used of cultivation to see if there's anything there. That's some homework yeah. for me to go do. I do want to put out there yeah. Michael B. Hunley's God, Gods and Dwellings, Temples and Divine Presence in the Ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. I only got through about half of it before our talk. It is very interesting. Tim, he does not think sacrifice is crucial to the definition, even though that is yeah. one of the more common ritual elements. But that right. goes off the deep end very, very quickly. Um but there's a lot to do here. And the beauty is this is not an issue that we're going to go, oh, this blows up our theology one way or another. I think there's no. some, it's interesting, Tim, and, and talking through this, I think we both come to about the same conclusion for the importance of this from different starting points, um, yeah. right? We both see Christ's work <laughs> as the culmination of the story. We see Revelation 22 as this like high point. So just kind well, of one of those odd journeys, but uh, I really appreciate you getting in with me. Let's just see. Any questions? Um, favorite Tolkien book? Oh, man, that's easy for me. Silmarillion for that. I thought of Such two more nerd. things that we just don't have time for, Brian, Such but it's nerd. very interesting. Uh, I'll have to I'll have to chat at you later, and maybe we okay. can do a subsequent episode. Follow-up, part two. Part Round two. two. Ding, ding, ding. Here we go. Uh, my favorite book, Jacob, would probably be Return of the King. I like the Cimmerillion. It just, it never has grabbed me quite as much. Um, Tim, thank you so much for this. This was lots of fun. Listeners, if you are listening to this or watching this on YouTube after the fact, we invite you to come join us live every Monday night, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. Subscribe to our channel and you'll be notified when a live stream is scheduled. We'd really love to have you here. We'd love to get our chat more active and sharing questions because that was quite fun. If you see me on the video looking over, I'm looking (laughs) at the chat. Thank you, everyone, for coming here and being here with us tonight. Next week, we're still staying with the garden because we are looking at the identity of the serpent. Join us then. Until then, stay cool and stay old. Have a great night, everyone.